it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. Um, welcome. Uh, today we're going to uh, start a new series of sermons on the three letters of John um, found at the, toward the end of our uh, Bibles. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made. And now in the hearing of your word, help us to hear your word for us. And in that hearing, help us to obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, in general, Protestant churches, uh, like us, lavish far more attention on the letters of the Apostle Paul than than on any of the other letters uh, in the New Testament. A part of this is simply because Paul just wrote more. There's just more of his letters, and so he gets more attention. But another reason for this is theological. Since the Reformation in the 16th century, when... um, Luther and the other reformers rediscovered the doctrine of salvation by faith and faith alone, Protestant churches and preachers have emphasized Paul's uh, rational forensic arguments for God's justifying grace through the cross and have tended to neglect some of the other writings like John's. Um, it's, It's not that John and Paul are in disagreement, nor that John is somehow less important, but that there is a kind of bias toward a particular theological position and emphasis. So if I could put it in a very crude, uh, not entirely accurate, but simple terms, uh, Paul's attention and that of the Protestant churches has been on the grace of God while the attention of John and the Eastern churches uh, has been on the love of God. So we have sort of the emphasis on the grace of God on the one hand by Paul, and then the emphasis on the love of God uh, by the apostle or by the the writings of of John. So um, we're going to spend some time now looking at the letters of John. Martin Luther, despite his near singular attention to the writings of Paul, still regarded the first letter of John very highly. He said this, This is an outstanding epistle. It can buoy up afflicted hearts. Furthermore, it has John's style and manner of expression. So beautifully and gently does it picture Christ to us. To buoy up afflicted hearts and to see a beautiful and gentle picture of Christ are two good reasons to hear this letter. Now, it's called a letter, 1 John, but it doesn't look or sound like a letter, especially in the beginning. Typically, a letter will begin with a greeting and mention who's writing it and who it is for. Paul, for example, will start his letters typically like this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and our brother, Timothy, 
to the church in such and such place. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Something like that. But in this letter, as you heard, there's no greeting. There's no indication of who's writing it, nor who the recipients are supposed to be. It just starts very abruptly. That which was from the beginning. Letters also typically end with some sort of closing benediction and a signature as Paul does. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. But if you peek at the end of this letter, it ends just as abruptly and unexpectedly with these odd words. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So even though it lacks these traditional letter uh, format, this format, throughout the letter, the writer will write, I write. About a dozen times to say, I write. And he repeatedly addresses the recipients as little children. So it's clearly meant to be heard as a letter. And even though we don't know the specific community to whom this letter is addressed, uh, it's clear as we'll get into the letter that this community is facing a kind of issue, uh, an issue that will, again, become clearer Uh, in the coming weeks. And it presupposes that those who are hearing this have some knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is not written for people who are, you know, non-believers. This is written to a church. As for who wrote it, the letter has been traditionally attributed to the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, the traditional author of the Gospel of John, the beloved disciple, But in the letter itself, there is no mention of who penned this letter. When we get to the second and third letters of John, they also do not say, this is written by John. Rather, it says, the elder is writing these letters. And so we might ask, why is John considered the author of this letter then? Why is his name attached to this letter? Well, you've probably already guessed. It's because the beginning of this letter sounds very much like the beginning of the Gospel of John, right? You heard, this is from the Gospel of John, the first uh, four verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In our reading, you find these similar words and phrases, the same tone. That which was from the beginning, concerning the word of life, the eternal life, which was with the Father, and so on. And so this shared vocabulary in the beginning suggests that this was written to a community familiar with the Gospel of John. He begins the letter in the beginning, like the Gospel, but then immediately shifts to his witness of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Again, notice here all the sensory verbs he uses. We have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon, we have touched with our hands. There's an emphasis on Christ's humanity. We have heard and we have seen are in the perfect tense, which means it's a completed action in the past that has ongoing results. So it's not something that They saw once and had forgotten, but it it has an ongoing impact in their lives. Um, 
I suppose it's something like, like getting a tattoo, right? You get it once, but it's with you forever, right? It has this ongoing uh, impact. So we have heard, we have seen, but there is this enduring legacy. It was not just a one-time thing. And even though John is the one who is writing this letter, he continuously refers to we, this community, this cloud of witnesses. We have seen, we have heard, we have touched. Now, many people think when John writes here this phrase, the word of life, he's referring only or primarily to the gospel message, right? The message concerning life, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, that might be true, but I think there's more going on here than just a reference to the message of the gospel. Because in the beginning of John's gospel, the word word is a synonym for Jesus. In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word is Jesus. The Word is Jesus through whom life is made. In him was life. And here he simply calls Jesus the Word of life. In verse 2, he shortens the Word of life to just life, and then expands it again to eternal life. It is this life that he and the community have seen and have heard and have touched. It's not just the message he's talking about here, the Word of life. He's talking about a person. It's not just a word about life or concerning a word, a message about life. He's talking about the word of life, Jesus Christ. And I want to take this even one step further. I don't think John here is talking only about the incarnation. Certainly that's part of it. He's talking about when Jesus walked the earth, they, they heard him, they saw the things that he did, they, they touched him, right? They handled him, they examined him fully. They were aware of him. But when John is talking about this word of life that he is proclaiming and is making witness to, it's not simply Jesus before he died. We proclaim, we heard, we saw, we examined Jesus also after the resurrection. He's talking not just about we saw him Before he died, he's also talking about after the resurrection. We are witnesses not only to his life prior to the cross, but we are witnesses to his life after the resurrection. Now, it's going to get spelled out more clearly later in the letter, but John says the reason he's writing this is because there are some in their community who have denied that Jesus is the Christ and that they have left the community. They left because they denied these these two fundamental truths about Jesus that we always have to keep in tension. Because there's always a tendency to neglect one or the other. On the one hand, as John writes here, Jesus is the eternal word of God from the beginning. He was with the Father From the beginning. And one of the things that John does in this letter grammatically to make this point is that whenever he uses the word son, and the word son will appear about uh, 20 times or so, whenever he uses this word son, it's always a reference to Jesus Christ. When he talks about the rest of us who are the children of God, he will use the word children. So he, he does this, he makes this distinction between Jesus the one unique Son of God 
and the rest of us many, the adopted children of God. It's a way to grammatically distinguish and to emphasize the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the eternal, uncreated word of God. This has to remind us that Jesus is not just some great teacher or a miracle worker. Jesus is not just the best of God's creatures. He's, he's just in a whole different category. He is the eternal word of God. He is the word of life. So on the one hand, Jesus is eternal. But on the other hand, he is at the same time, somehow, the one who is heard and seen and touched. He was a human being. He was not some ghostly form of a man. He was not God um, in disguise, as it were. He was as real as any of us. And the fact that he died certifies to the reality of his humanity. I know that we live in a time of, of fake news, and our default position is skepticism and doubt. And we can rightly wonder, how could Jesus really be God and a human being? doesn't make sense. doesn't make sense. Who can believe this news? And so today, of course, people tend to try to strip Jesus of his divinity, right? And when we emphasize his humanity, he set an example for us. He was a good teacher and and so on. In the first few centuries, uh, there were all kinds of groups making similar claims about Jesus. You had Gnostics, you had uh, the Ibionites, you had Serinthians, all these different groups of people, a little church history 101 there, that, that would just argue at one end or the other that Jesus was not really God. He was like half God maybe, or he wasn't really God, but then after the uh, baptism, somehow you know, God entered. Like, people came with all kinds of different ideas to try to, try to explain this. Because it, this idea that God revealed himself fully in Jesus Christ, in full humanity and full divinity, like, it doesn't make sense. And so you can see why in a church that this is being addressed to, they struggled with this. And some, no, he can't be the Messiah. He can't be the Christ. It doesn't make sense. John's answer for now and for the church is that, yeah, it's hard to believe, but, he says, there is a group of eyewitnesses who heard, who saw, who touched, who handled Jesus in his life and in his resurrection. He appeals to eyewitness testimony of God's revelation in Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God. He and the others had firsthand experience of Jesus Christ. Now, this, is, this letter is not really an argument to convince non-believers. Rather, it's a reminder to reassure those of us who already believe. He writes that they not only saw him with their eyes, but that they looked Upon him. That is, they perceived beyond what was simply physically available. We beheld his glory, writes the Gospel of John. We are eyewitnesses of Jesus of Nazareth, who was falsely tried, condemned, and crucified on a cross in Jerusalem. 
Those are undeniable facts. We are witnesses to that. But we are also witnesses to Jesus the Christ, the unique Son of God who died on the cross for our sins. We perceive those spiritual truths. I know that in a culture of a toleration and pluralism and relativism, it may appear to be the height of arrogance and backwardness to claim the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the one Son of God. But that is what we proclaim. That is what we proclaim because that is what we have witnessed. I was reminded recently that there are uh, Christian seminaries in which the push for diversity and tolerance has become such that professors can hold dubious um, or perhaps agnostic positions on the person of Jesus Christ. Years ago when I was in seminary, my uh, Greek professor uh, told us that he did not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's hard, right? That's hard to hear from your professor. Not too long ago, I heard about one other seminary, for example, where the only belief that was required, at least as a kind of a litmus test, was the endorsement of women's ordination. You could doubt the deity of Christ, and that's okay. But if you didn't support women's ordination, you would not be considered as a hire. Now, issues regarding ordination, that's an important question. But John reminds us, that is not the center of our identity. It's not. I know today, you know, the question about gender sort of dominates so much of our conversations in politics and elsewhere. But that is not the center of our identity. That is not the center of our community. What matters, as John tells us, is our fellowship in Jesus Christ. Jesus must be the center because Jesus is the one unique word of God, the eternal word of life, and it's this word that must be proclaimed. And so John proclaims this word to us, this word of life, for a double purpose. In verses 3 and 4, he gives us a couple of so that's. We proclaim Jesus, the word of life, whom we have experienced to you, so that, and this is the kind of an application So first of all, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. The word of life makes possible our fellowship with one another and with God. As the Son and the Father are in fellowship, so we too get to share in that. I know that for us, the word fellowship generally conjures up images of just sort of uh, hanging out, maybe of drinking coffee and making awkward small talk in the fellowship hall. But the word fellowship means something much more than that. It means a uh, mutual commitment to a mutual cause, to a common cause. Uh, For example, in the letter to the Romans, Paul writes that he is going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the uh, poor Christians. And he writes, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution, same word, fellowship, to make some contribution or fellowship for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Taking on financial matters for one another is fellowship. 
Similarly, in Hebrews 13, 16, we hear, do not neglect to do good and to share, that is, to fellowship what you have. To share what you have, that's fellowship. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So there is a kind of mutual commitment to a common cause. But even more fundamentally, this word fellowship, this idea of fellowship, points to relationship. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul writes, God is faithful to whom you were called into the fellowship. Whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what Jesus was getting at in his prayer in John 17. This is eternal life, that you may, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Fellowship with the Father and the Son, that relationship, that is eternal life. That's primarily what it means to have eternal life. It's not about, you know, a place called heaven. It's about this fellowship, this relationship with God the Father and Jesus the Son. You know, in, in this church, we called um, our small weekly gatherings of, of um, small groups of people. Uh, many churches call them small groups. We call them uh, fellowship groups uh, because of this, right? Um, it's not, it, they're not fellowship groups. Uh, you might mistakenly think, oh, it's just, we're just going to go and kind of hang out together and have fun. I mean, that, that's a part of it. But that's not their intent. They're designed for this, this deeper relationship this deeper mutual commitment to a common cause. But fundamentally, it's about deepening those relationships. Not just with one another, but with God. That's why we gather for, for prayer, for Bible study, and for common mission. It's fellowship, it's relationship within the inner life of God with one another. So that's the first reason. That's the first so that. And the second is, John writes, so that you may have fellowship and so that, verse 4, so that our joy may be complete. So that our joy may be complete. A few months ago, I had coffee with a man uh, who shared with me about how, uh, when he was younger, he was a very enthusiastic Christian. You know, he was a leader in the church, uh, very much involved. Um, but then he said in the last several years, um, he says he's just lost hope. He just lost hope in the world and he lost hope in the church. Because he said as he looked around the world, um, when he considered the evil, the violence, the destruction all around him, he said he, he just couldn't see any hope. And so he drifted away from the fellowship of the church and with God. You know, and I, I listened to him and I thought, you know, that's, yeah, it's very easy to feel that way. Like when you think about what's going on in the world today, yeah, it's easy to lose hope and get depressed. Sometimes when I think about what's happening in the world, I mean, I, I don't know what's going to, I don't know what my kids and their kids are going to see down the line. It's easy to lose hope. Now, you, you can tie yourself to cheer up or, you know, to... Make yourself try to be more of an optimist. But that usually doesn't work, and it doesn't last, because that's, that's not hope. And that's certainly not joy, not the kind that he's talking about here. But look at, look at what John says about this. 
Isn't it interesting that he says, our joy? We write this so that our joy may be complete, not so that your joy will be complete. He's not writing so that they will just be, you know, completed, but he's writing so that our shared joy, not just yours, but mine too, will be complete. Apparently there's a kind of incomplete or partial joy. I'm intrigued by the fact that Jesus himself said to his disciples in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The Apostle Paul had the same idea when he wrote to the Philippians, complete my joy, right? The whole letter is about joy, joy, joy. And he says, complete my joy because apparently there's a way to have joy that's not full or complete. They are responsible, we are responsible for completing each other's joy. That's what John is talking about. They all understood that joy requires relationship. It's not just a matter of having the right attitude. It's not just a matter of, you know, the circumstances around you being easy or comfortable. The most important aspect of joy is relational. In other words, it's fellowship. It's that fellowship that you have with God and therefore with one another that makes joy possible and makes it full. I think you know this. You've experienced this. For me, every time uh, someone in our church leaves for California, a little joy seeps out, right? Because I know I can no longer have the kind of regular face-to-face fellowship. And that every time someone joins our church or comes back from California or the West Coast, like, there's joy. There's joy. It, it makes the joy fuller. It enlarges it. It completes it. And that's what John is reminding us. Fellowship and joy are intimately connected because both are rooted in the life of God. If you want more joy in life, John is saying, get connected, get into fellowship with God and with others. That's the start of eternal life. That's the start of eternal life. Psalm 16:11 declares about God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Not just joy, but fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In God's presence, there is the fullness of joy. I have two great illustrations about fellowship and joy for you today. One is named Kelly, and the other is named Eric. It just so happens today that we are going to be extending the right hand of fellowship to two new members of our church. And we're going to get a chance now to hear their stories. Their proclamation of how they heard, how they saw, how they experienced firsthand Jesus Christ for themselves. We will hear about their fellowship with God and soon how they are now going to, in that fellowship with God, enter into fellowship with us and so complete, make fuller our joy. Let's pray together. God, we are mindful of how easy 
it can be to drift away from the truth. Help us to be reassured and reminded of the truth that we have come to know. The truth that we have come to share in fellowship with you and with one another. The fellowship that Jesus the Christ makes possible for us. Help us to stick with one another to be reassured of Jesus' life, his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection, and the promise of eternal life. Remind us of what we have seen and have heard and known from the beginning. Lift up our afflicted hearts and help us to see Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this time, we are going to receive into the membership of this congregation um, those who have made a decision.